This church, we really focus on the fact that God wants to speak to us. We teach series on how to hear God's voice. We value prophetic ministry. We offer prophetic ministry every Sunday, which is where you can just come and receive what is God saying to you in your situation, in your life right now. What is God saying? And we believe that God really wants to speak directly into our life situation. But one of the rules we have, one of the principles we have with the prophetic ministry and with just hearing God in general is that it needs to be submitted to the Bible and it needs to be in accordance with what the Bible says, right? That's, that's, what, we, that's what we teach. That's what we've learned. So every prophetic word that we get, you know, we've got to test it. We've got to judge it. Does it seem like it's a right fit in our life situation? But more importantly, it, does it agree with what's in the Bible? Does it agree with what's in the Bible? So what would be a good way to know if it agrees with what's in the Bible? Knowing the Bible. Well, that's a really good principle, knowing the Bible. <laughs> and there's some things the Bible speaks really directly about. If you get a prophetic word to go out and cause somebody physical injury or harm, you know, you're going to say, well, I, that doesn't seem quite right. You know, and you can, chapter and verse, you can find out, you know, the Bible will, will speak clearly to that issue. But there's a lot of issues in our lives that the Bible doesn't seem to speak clearly about, right? Like, you know, does the Bible speak clearly about some of our modern day issues that we have? Just sometimes you're in a situation, you're like, wow, I wish the Bible spoke more clearly on that. But, you know, we have to believe that God speaks and that there's everything in the Bible that we need. And that's just the foundation to who we are. That we just need to really put our stock in the Bible as a place where we can really learn what God has to say. There's a blog that I go to by a guy called Ben Witherington, who is a uh, lecturer in a college in Kentucky. And the other day, he uh, the other day he had a blog that was all about this issue of reading the Bible. And I was really encouraged because I was already thinking about preaching on this, about how to understand the Bible more clearly. And uh, he just had this, and I, it's great. I'm just going to like completely borrow from him. You know, you might say, haven't I got everything I already need to understand the Bible in one sense? Like, I have the Holy Spirit inside me, and I have the Bible in my own language. Don't I have enough to understand? Like, come on, Holy Spirit, like, do your job, like, help me to understand the Bible, right? It'd be tempting to think that. We're, we're big on hearing from the Spirit, you know? But uh, he makes some good points. And he said, uh, he says, don't Christians have brains? and the Holy Spirit to guide them? He says, yes, but all modern brains are affected in the way they think by their modern culture. Okay, we are a product of just the culture that we live in. That's just, that's just a fact. And, you know, I grew up in, in Britain, and, you know, when I came to the States, uh, there was stuff that I had to learn about being in America, you know? There's a whole lot of stuff that you would think, oh, that's just obvious. It might be obvious to you guys. You know, you grew up here. In the same way, if you went back and, you know, were dropped into Northern Ireland, like Dan Salerno has been there, you know, if you had to go back, there'd be a lot of little things that you'd be like, that's really weird. That's really odd. Well, the same applies with the Bible. You know, ancient, he writes here, ancient biblical cultures, languages, and modes of conveying meaning are often so different from what appears to us to be common sense that it's good to have some guidelines to help us understand what the Bible is talking about. Right? If you ever read the Bible and there's some custom in there that you're like, wow, that's weird. Like, really? Like, God cares if you have mildew in your house? Like, that's kind of strange. Or, like, what's with all those sacrifices and separating things out? 
Well, I want to give you three. There's lots and lots of ways to learn how to interpret. And these are just guidelines of how to, how to read the Bible and how to get a little bit more out of it. And that's really all I'm going for today. I'm not going to fill in all the gaps. Hopefully you'll have a lot more kind of like questions. I just want to pique your interest that there's ways to read the Bible. Uh, in English, you don't have to become a Greek and Hebrew scholar to the original languages of the Bible in order to get more out of what's in here. And I think that, you know, God really wants us to get more out of the Bible. He really wants us to understand and become familiar with the Bible. And I was trying to imagine what is it like, like trying to apply these guidelines. Well, to me, it's like you're giving God more to aim at. You know, if you want to receive from God, you know, you've got to give him something to aim at in one sense. You know, and as we understand the Bible, as we understand how to read it, we're giving the Holy Spirit more to work with. We're saying, Holy Spirit, I... I really want to understand the Bible and I want you to help me understand the Bible. And I understand that you wrote the Bible a certain way and uh, I'm going to try to understand how you wrote it so that I can get more out of it. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's why you have a Bible in your hand. I just want to give a quick little background. We're really blessed to have the Bible in our own language. For most of the church history, that people like us who gathered to worship didn't have it in their own language, believe it or not. Um... The first major translation of the Bible was in Latin, and it was commissioned in right around 400 A.D. by the Bishop of Rome. And um, by that point, the church was growing, becoming more established, and it was really centered around the Roman uh, culture. And the bishop said, hey, we need, we need a Bible in Latin so everybody can understand it. Well, that worked until the Roman Empire ended, right? And then what happened, you had to have the priest or somebody who was learn, learned in Latin, who knew Latin. They had to... They had to translate it for you, right? And um, for over a thousand years, that Latin Bible called the Vulgate, that was the Bible. And if you didn't learn Latin, then tough luck. You can't read the Bible in your own language. Right around um, the 1500s, the first kind of English versions of the Bible started to appear. And it wasn't until um, 1611 that we got the King James. And um, who's read the King James a lot? growing up. Who was forced to read it? Yeah, I was forced to read Sorry, who enjoyed reading it? <laughs> I, was, uh, I was forced to read it. This is the New King James, which is a little bit more manageable. And uh, what, who's laughing? Come on. <laughs> but you know, the King James was controversial in its time. Believe it or not, it was controversial. And people died over Bible translations. Like the first people that actually um, translated the Bible into English were considered heretics. People, people in authority who, who like really loved Latin Bibles were like, how dare you translate the Bible into English? And there was a guy who did it. I think it was at Wycliffe or was it Tyndale? It was one of, one of those two guys. Um, translated the Bible. Um, you know, he died and um, his Bible became quite popular after his death. People were so upset who were like, so about the Latin Bible that they dug his body up after he had died and they burned his body. They were so upset. Isn't that crazy? So people have died so that you can read this twice. Excellent. So that you can read this, right? Which makes no sense to us. Like, we're so far removed from that, from time and history and culture. But... It's really just incredible. And you might get confused. Wow, there's so many different translations. Well, the, the King James Bible 
was the Bible in English for a long, long time. And in fact, there were others that came along, like the New American Standard or the Revised Standard, and they went back to the, to the King James. And actually, the King James borrowed a lot from that Latin Bible. You know, they did go back to the original languages of Greek and Hebrew, but often they would go back and they would look at what did the Latin say? Because the scholars who did this, they knew Latin also. So every Bible that we have is, is a translation from Hebrew and from Greek. And, you know, there's certain words that just don't translate very well when they translate over to English. So every single Bible we have already has some interpretation into it as to what it means. So when somebody sits down and they see a Greek word or a Greek sentence, even if you translated it word for word, sometimes it doesn't make sense because of grammar or different things. So what they'll do is they'll put the sentence in English and they'll kind of tweak it a certain way so it makes sense. So if you're worried about Bible translations, you have to know that like every Bible already is some kind of interpretation. And so just pick one and then just get familiar with it. You know, some people get really bent out of shape about Bible translations. You know, and some people are like the guys who, who like held fast to Latin. Like it has to be the old King James, you know, and every new modern translation is like terrible, you know, because it doesn't quite capture it. But, you know, just pick a translation and get really familiar with it. And um, Cameron's bought the new King James for us. That's what we're going to use today. So what is the, what are the three guidelines that I'm going to share for interpretation? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just mention two of them really quickly. And then the third one, I want to go into more detail. The first one is... It means what it says. Okay? It means what it says. And you might think, well, that's a little basic. Like, I can open this up and read it. You know what? One of the, like, there's two rules that when you, when you go to try to learn how to interpret and read and interpret the Bible, there's two rules that often get broken right away. The first one is when you go to the Bible, you have an agenda, and you read the Bible to back up your agenda. You know that, like, like really odd cults that start that's what they do like some guy is like ah i have this message from god and then what does he do he goes to the bible and justifies it and there's a danger in just coming to the bible with an idea and saying this is my idea and i want to justify it so how do you come against that how do you say oh i don't want to i don't want to become completely wacky you know, meaning happens not just with individual words, but meaning happens with words in a context. If I spell out the English word R-O-W, what is that word? Row. Well, it's also raw, right? So you could have a row with somebody, an argument with somebody, or you could row a boat. So if you just looked at that individual word, you might not know what it means. You need a bigger context to understand that word. Well, the same thing will happen as you read the Bible. You know, sometimes, like in Greek, the same word for woman is the same word for wife. So when the Bible interpreters are trying to decide what does this passage mean, sometimes they translate the word wife because it makes sense in context. Sometimes they translate it woman because it makes sense in that context. Does that make sense? So that's just kind of like the process that goes on. Well, for us who aren't reading in Greek or Hebrew, the best way is just to, just when you read, when you find a verse that's really speaking to you, just back up a little bit and just read what's the extended context of the sentence. So a lot of the Bibles that we have actually help us with this because they're divided up into paragraphs, not even just, and sections, not even just um, chapter and verse. A lot of them will have sections and they'll have like, like headings. So if you just turn to any page, you'll see like bold headings. Okay, and so that will help you. So if you find a verse that's in the middle of a section, just go back up to the top 
of that or the start of a chapter or something like that and just read a little bit more around that verse and it'll help you understand what that verse is talking about in its context in which it was written. Okay, so that's a really easy way and that'll stop you from doing something which is called proof texting which is the second guideline is that you really want to take things in context. Context really, really matters. If you do a thing called proof texting, you just latch onto a word or a phrase and you just say, oh, that's the word for today. And you grab it and you run with it. But without context, you might have no idea what that word really, really means. So the guy on this blog had a, had a story about that. If I can find it. He said a few years ago, he was uh, overseeing some Methodist churches in, uh, in North Carolina. He said he got a call from somebody who wanted to know if it was okay to breed dogs because uh, somebody who worked with him told him it said somewhere in the King James that God's people should not breed dogs. Okay, this is a big issue. <clears throat> I told him I would look up all the references to dog in the Bible to get to the bottom of it. There was nothing of any relevance in the New Testament, but then I came across this peculiar translation of an Old Testament verse quotes, thou shalt not breed with the dogs. <laughs> the plot thickens. Uh -huh. <laughs> A little bit more research. I called up my church friend and told him, I've got good news and bad news. He said he wanted the good news first. Well, you can breed as many of those furry creatures as you like. There's nothing in the Bible against it. That's good news. And he asked, what's the bad news? Well, I said, there is a verse that calls foreign women dogs and warns the Israelites not to breed with them. Mm. There was a silence on the other end of the line. And finally, Mr. Smith said, well, I'm feeling much relieved. My wife, Betty Sue, is from just down the road. <laughs> All right, so context matters. All right, and that's what happens. Like, you'll be talking to somebody. They'll say, oh, doesn't it say in the Bible? You know. And they can give you chapter and verse. Well, they know their Bible, chapter and verse. But do they understand that verse in context or that word in context or that phrase in context? So just back up a little bit. Just read a little bit more around. Does that make sense? And that, I mean, that will just help you. That's a basic. That will really help you understand what's going on. Okay, the third one that I, I want to focus on is called genre matters. You might say genre. That's a weird word. What does that mean? Well, you're actually really familiar with genre in your everyday lives. You might not know it. Is every single book the same kind of book? No. Some people are like, is that a trick question? I don't know. I'm not sure. Is every, is every kind of book the same kind of book? When you go into Barnes & Noble or wherever, is it, are they all the same? No. Well, every different type of book is a genre. It's a, it's a French word that just means kind or type. So every different kind or type of thing is a genre. So when we come to the Bible... Genre matters because the Bible is made up of lots of genres. Anybody know what the main genre in the Bible is? That's a theme. I'm looking for a type. Basically, it's types of literature. The, the main thing is story or narrative is another word to say that. The second is poetry. Believe it or not, there's tons of poetry in the Bible. So the first is story. The second is poetry. And then after that, we get things like history. Like history is a type of genre. Uh, legal stuff like the law, that's another type of genre. 
So, you know, if you're in like Exodus is kind of a story, but then it kind of goes into law. Like Leviticus is a lot of law, but it's law and story mixed together. Like the, the laws actually help move the story along. So if you skip them out, then you miss parts of the story. So the Bible is full of this. And often you'll be reading like a story and then there'll be like a poem in the middle of it or like a song in the middle of it or something like that. So the Bible is really big on different types of literature within the whole it's really big on different types of genre. So does that make sense? Everybody following? So, uh, so the main number one is story, like I said. Now, some of us have ordered Stephanie Jones's book, the kid's book, right? Sarah is holding it up. So when you approach that book, you already know what genre it is. You know it's a kid's book. So when you read that, you're not going to expect poetry or some kind of discussion on, like, the Civil War, you know? You know what it is. It's a kid's story, right? So in your mind, you've mentally prepared for that genre. Now, the problem is, because we're not familiar with the genres in the Bible, we open it up, and we expect it all to read the same. So we expect, like, the Old Testament stories to be the same as, as maybe Paul's letters in the New Testament. But there's actually a shift that we've got to do in our minds in order to understand what the point of those is. Does that make sense? So we do it kind of unconsciously because we're so used to it. So I brought a modern day version to understand. Behold the Sunday paper. Oh, I was expecting a really big thump, but British Sunday papers are much more weighty, apparently. <laughs> what? So here we have big news. Uh, WMU dumps Buffalo in OT. A couple of applause. Leaders vow to intercede on crisis. Ethical issues key in voting on stem cells. Okay, what what are those that I just read? Headlines. Headline is a type of genre, believe it or not. So when we read that headline, we already expect not to know the full story. It's just the, you know, it's just grabbing your attention. So you've already decided, when I read this headline... It's not going to tell me that much. It's just going to direct me. And headline writers love to use things like puns and word plays and things like that. You know, like the word buffalo, like it could be if it was a reverse, like buffalo stamps over western or like stampedes over western. You know, headline writers like to do stuff like that all the time. Well, um, Israelite poetry and Jewish poetry, like the stuff you find in the Old Testament, loves word plays. Like they love to do things like that. So that's just an example. So like when you read the sports section... It might tell you, like, somebody ran for, I'm trying to see if it says, somebody uh, completed 34 of 61 passes for 283 yards. Wow, that's great. <laughs> I kind of did some yard work yesterday, but I didn't really take account of it. I, I didn't really, I didn't really uh, measure it in yards. See, so one yard, yeah. So you've got to understand what that what that is. So we've already switched our mindset from reading a headline or reading the news to reading sports. So when we read that so-and-so ran for 100 yards, you already know what that means within its context, right? You already know that they're talking sports. So it'd be kind of weird if we came up and we just said, oh, yeah, yesterday I walked for like 14 meters. would be like, wow, that's cool. <laughs> you know? And you instinctively know which part of this huge monstrosity to turn to if you want 
news about what's happening in the country or what's happening in the world or what's happening more locally. You know where to turn to to find out what's playing at the Kalamazoo 10. You know where to turn to for the comic strips. You know where to turn to for the classifieds. Okay? So this is like the Bible. One, one large piece of literature that has many parts in it and you approach each part differently. So when you approach narrative in the Bible, you approach it differently than you approach poetry. When you approach Paul's letters, you approach them differently than you approach maybe like the law section. Does that make sense? So uh, so who knows how long newspapers will be with us. But while they are, that's an illustration that we can use. <laughs> Sorry. Somebody's like, newspapers will always be with us. Um, I have an example of poetry from Northern Ireland. This guy is called Seamus Heaney. Has anybody ever heard of Seamus Heaney? Some students have heard of Seamus Heaney. That is amazing. (laughs) Seamus Heaney won the Nobel Prize for Literature like the end of the 90s. And uh, he has some great stuff. And I love Seamus Heaney's poetry because it reminds me of a lot of things growing up. He talks a lot about the land and different things like that. It talks a lot about kind of like just life in Northern Ireland. So a lot of it just really, I'm like really excited about. So uh, I want to read one, one little line or two. Okay, in this poem he's talking about like when he was, when he first went to school, he went to a boarding school, so he was apart from his family and he got to know this other guy and uh, they were friends and He's talking about when he first tried to write poetry and trying to write about different things that he saw. He said, I tried to write about the sycamores and innovated a South Derry rhyme with hushed and hulled, full chimes for pushed and pulled. And I just love those two lines. And you guys might not get them because it doesn't make any sense, but like people from, people from South Derry, which is what he's from and what he mentioned there, that's how they talk. So that instead of the word pushed, they say pushed. And instead of pulled, they say pulled. So they change the accent of the U. So when he says that line, with hushed and hulled, full chimes for pushed and pulled, that makes me laugh because I'm like, yeah, like people from there talk like that and it's really weird. And he uses, <laughs> and he uses this poem to make you like have that experience of like just for a second, like speaking like, like people from South Derry. Well, the Old Testament likes to do that too. They like to use like plays on words and it likes to use kind of like little things like that, little tricks like that and when it writes its poetry. So there's some things about not only like the different types of literature like the law or stories or history or poems that are in the Bible, but there's also a lot of crafting that has gone on kind of behind the scenes to make the Bible more memorable. So when, especially the Old Testament, that was actually given like by word of mouth for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so people had to speak the Old Testament to other people and then it would have to be memorized. And, you know, kids would like know like the first five books of the Bible off by heart at a very young age. And they would learn it and it's like, wow, how could they do that? Like I can barely remember like four verses, you know? Like how did they learn whole books? Well, it is a very impressive feat, but there are some things that were built in naturally to the way the Bible was written that helped people 
to be able to communicate it and be able to learn it. And there are, ways, there are things that have been brought into our English translations that can help us understand and kind of see the framework of how the Bible is set up. So let's turn to one. Let's, uh, we're going to go right back to the start with Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. So how many people know how many chapters are in Genesis? Somebody shout out how many chapters there are. Enough, a lot. Anybody, how many chapters in Genesis? Fifty. Do you know that chapters and verses weren't part of the original Bible? They were just put in there to help us learn and to know where we were so we wouldn't get too lost. Well, to us, you might say there's 50 verses or 50 chapters in, in Genesis. 50 chapters in Genesis. Wow, that's a long book. I'm going to show you how that when, the, when the, this book was uh, communicated and passed on from person to person by word of mouth, they only split it up into roughly 12 sections. So it was easier. Instead of learning 50 chapters, they just learned 12 extended stories. You ready? And you're going to see it in your English Bible. Amazingly, you don't need to know Hebrew. Genesis 2, verse 4. What does it say? This is the story, or this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. You see that? Now, you see how it accents the is? Like that is, like in italics? Well, often we will do that. We do that in English to emphasize that word. So when we read that, we'll say, This is the history. Well, in the King James Version of the Bible, in the New King James, the is isn't for emphasis like that. It's simply communicating that, that that is, or whatever word is in italics, wasn't originally a word that was in the Hebrew, and they've just had to add it in English in order to make the sentence make sense. So, if you look down at a, your footnote, at the very, very bottom of your page, it'll say, 2 verse 4. Do you see that? And then it says Hebrew. And it has a funny word, Toledoth. Literally, generations. Do you see that? It's at the very, very bottom of your page. Well, what that 2 verse 4 is, that's a translation of the Hebrew phrase Toledoth, which literally means generations. So when they, trans when they uh, had to kind of communicate, what does that word Toledoth mean? They had to come up with a phrase for it, and they came up with, this is the history of communicates that one word. This is the history of, and you get that a lot. So, this is the history of the heavens and the earth. Okay, you go to 5 verse 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In that day, God created man and made him in the likeness of God. Okay, that's the same word, same root word, that Toledoth. Okay, so we've gone from the history of the heavens and earth, and now we're in the second story, the history of Adam. Okay, go to 6 verse 9, just across the page. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was just a man, perfect in his generation. Noah walked with God. The same phrase, so we've gone from Adam, Adam now we're to Noah. 10 verse 1. Now, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and the sons were born to them after the flood. Okay, so now we've gone. You see how it's going from person to person and just jumping from one to the other? And what's happening is that one phrase, Toledoth, is the same 
for this is the genealogy of or this is the history of. It's that same root word. So when people heard this, they would know, oh, that's a marker. Like, I, can, I understand now that we're moving into a new section. And so it would help them remember. You go over to 11, verse 1. Or sorry, uh, 10:32. These were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations. And then 11, verse 10. This is the genealogy of Shem, one of Noah's sons. So it's jumping. It's going from person to person. 11.27, this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begat Abram. And then it jumps all the way forward to 25. Verse 12. This is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abram's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. 25.19 This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. 36, verse 1. Now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. 36, verse 9. This is the genealogy of Esau, father of the Edomites at Mount Seir. And then 37, verse 2. This is the history of Jacob, Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock, and so it goes on. Okay, that, that's, that's Genesis, just in those divisions. So instead of 50 chapters, you have about 12 stories. So it starts with the story of the heavens and the earth, then the story of Adam, and then it just keeps going forward. You know, And you have all of, a lot of the major figures that we're familiar with in Genesis. And Genesis 37-2, the history of Jacob. The rest of Genesis is all about Jacob and about his sons. So a lot of that story is about Joseph, but really the story is about Jacob. And when we read about Joseph, it's, you know, in the back of their minds, they would have been like, okay, how does this apply to Jacob? Because they already know from, from that last verse we read, 37.2, that the story is about Jacob. Because we know that Jacob is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that he would bless him and he would have descendants throughout the whole earth. So that's just one way. This, it's, like a, it's just a device on how they wrote the Bible to make it more memorable. So that's just one instance. Okay, Exodus 18. Uh, Moses has been in the desert leading the people of Israel. Okay, so imagine that you're hearing this. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of what God had done for Moses. Verse 2, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. Verse 5, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came to his sons and his wife, Moses. Verse 6, now I said to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro. Verse 7, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. Verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law that the Lord had, what the Lord had done to Pharaoh. And it keeps going. Verse 14, so when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people... Verse 15, Moses said to his father-in-law, verse 17, so Moses' father-in-law said to him, okay, do you think Moses had forgotten who his father-in-law was? No, I don't think he did either. Do you think that the people hearing the story he were able to memorize huge chunks of the Bible had forgotten between two verses who uh, Moses' father-in-law was? I don't think they did either. So why would the Bible say over and over that Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, had given him such advice. Well, I think that the communicator of Exodus is trying to give us a hint here and saying, you know, who was Moses listening to? 
his father-in-law. You know, God isn't mentioned once in that chapter. It's just Moses' father-in-law. Moses' father-in-law. And often, what happens in that chapter? Well, Moses' father-in-law comes along and says, Hey, Moses, you look a little overwhelmed. You need to set up this committee of people, and they're going to help you deal with all of the issues that are going on. And often we read that and we think, Wow, wasn't Moses' father-in-law really wise? He came and helped Moses out when Moses was in a tough spot. Well, that seems fair enough, unless you know that Moses' father-in-law was giving the advice and Moses didn't stop to ask God once. So that's just a little trick that's in there, you know, that just the Bible was communicated, you know, spoken out loud. And sometimes when you read it out loud, you catch up, catch things like that that you might not otherwise see. So what happens in that story is then, you know, there's a series of events that happen many, many chapters later. You see another instance where Moses' father-in-law is involved, and that whole time in between, there's been issues that have come up that uh, Moses has had to deal with, and it all stems back to uh, Moses' father-in-law. And the Bible isn't afraid to really, you know, let issues kind of simmer beneath the surface, and then they'll just like pop up way later. And uh, the people that had heard the Bible, they would have been familiar with that, and they would have been just waiting for something to happen. And I'll give you an example from the life of David, and uh, we all know the story of David and Bathsheba, right? Right, David and Bathsheba sees Uriah's wife. David sees Uriah's wife Bathsheba and um, commits adultery with her and they have a son. It's like anytime anybody talks about David as a human just like the rest of us, you know, that's what's brought up. He committed adultery and murder. But that's really only one part of a bigger story. Uh, if you knew that. But actually the story is not just that one chapter but it's, it's several chapters and that one is right in the middle. And what they're characterized by is, is just like that story of Moses' father-in-law you know, it was repeated so many times in that one chapter. Well, sometimes a word will be repeated over several chapters, and that gives you a clue like, oh, what's the, what's trying to, what's the writer trying to tell me here? So the word that is repeated is sand. So really where that big story starts that David and Bathsheba is in is it starts a couple of chapters earlier, or a chapter earlier in Second uh, Samuel 10. And it starts off with David had, um, there was a nation right beside the Ammonites, and David had been friendly with the Ammonite king who died, and he, David wanted to be on friendly terms with um, the new king, who was the old king's son. So he sent to the king, and he sent this party to the king. It says, David sent to the king of the Ammonites. So what happened? The Ammonite king sent the people back because he didn't trust what they were for. So David is upset and sends somebody else, and he gets sent back. And what happens is the Ammonite king sends for all of his troops and brings them to the border. So David sends for all of his troops. And the word that is repeated is sends. David sends. David sends. David sends. So what happens when David sees, uh, whenever uh, the, start, the start of that story happens with Bathsheba, David sent his army to fight the Ammonites. Because this had been escalating now for a while. And David sent the army. And then what did he do? He sees Bathsheba. He sends for Bathsheba. Oh, there's a lot of send. David's doing a lot of sending, and it becomes more and more frequent. Bathsheba sends word to David, I'm pregnant. David sends for Uriah. And, you know, people listening to this, they're like, oh, man, David is digging deeper and deeper. And this word send is really heightening that, you know, he's, they're like, oh, man, David is really, oh, he is, he is in for it. Like, he is, he's doing all this. He's just trying to work his way out of a problem by himself. Does that sound familiar to anyone? David is trying to, oh, man, but he is just getting deeper and deeper. So what happens? David sends Uriah. Uriah won't go home and spend the night with his wife. David's tracks won't be covered. What's he got to do? He sends Uriah to the front line. What happens? Uriah dies. Oh, man. What's David done? How does, how does chapter 12 start? 
the Lord sends Nathan the prophet. <laughs> yeah. So David does all of this sending and digs himself into a really big hole. And with all of that activity, David gets nowhere. And with one sending, God corrects everything. David sends Nathan, or God sends Nathan the prophet. And if you were hearing that, you know, sitting, sitting around a campfire in Israel, you would have just been like waiting for it. You're like, I know what's coming. I know what's coming. The Lord sends Nathan. Ah, there it is. Oh, David is in so much trouble now. Whew, he is in trouble. Okay, so how do we pick up on these things? Oh, I had one more thing. Is that with the Genesis thing where it's major character to major character? I was thinking, how do we explain this? Because we're so used to chapter and verse. So I was thinking about you go on a journey. Like say you want to take the 131 to, to Grand Rapids. Well, you know, I drive that a couple of times a week. I'm really familiar with it. I know I got to be at Plainwell by a certain time. Then I got to be in Wayland by a certain time. Then I got to be, you know, I got to be kind of like at 44th Street in Grand Rapids. Then I got to be in downtown. Then I got to be in Beltline. I have it all mapped out. And that's how I think about it. You know, I think Plainwell you know, Wayland, and I just map it out like that. That's kind of how the Israelites would have mapped out Genesis. You know, you go from the heavens and the earth to Adam. You know, you get to Noah. Then later you get to Jacob. You know, does that make sense? Okay, how we're used to reading the Bible is more like mile markers. You know, like I don't think, oh, I can't wait till I get to mile marker 70. So I don't even know what's there. You know, but often what we'll do is we'll say, I'm going to go on a journey in the Bible, and I'm going to start at mile marker 50, and I'm going to stop at 70. You know, so you kind of start in the middle of nowhere, and then you kind of finish in the middle of nowhere. And then you wonder, like, why am I lost? You know? Okay, how do we apply all this? Like I said, we just have to believe God wants to communicate to us through the Bible, and he's, he has communicated a certain way, but he wants to make it as easy as possible. There are some guidelines. Just read some longer sections, you know, just like I say, read a whole paragraph instead of a verse, and it'll help you keep it in context. Um, just read a little bit slower. Like, what I'm trying to do is when I get to reading the Bible, I try to like count to 10 or count to 20 really slowly, just to like slow myself down, so that when I get to reading the Bible, I'm kind of like at the pace the Bible wants to go, so that I can really listen. And I can really read what's there. And if you read it too fast, you miss all of those references to like sending or generations that just are designed to help us understand and help us remember. Okay, the, be the best single resource you can buy is a study Bible because it has all of this stuff in there at the bottom of the page in all the really small print. It outlines verse by verse what the issues are, cross-references. Everything is in that one thing. You don't need to buy tons of books. It's all in a study Bible. And that's about it. It's just, just really taking your time and just really appreciating what's in the Bible. So let's stand. Uh, I'm just going to pray. Father, we just want to know what you are saying to us in every season of life, every situation of life, God. And we know that you have given us your word, the Bible, to speak to us, to communicate to us. God, we just pray that you would help us to know how to read, how to understand your word. God, we just thank you for it. And we just pray that you would just, Holy Spirit, enable us to read your word for everything that it's worth, God, and to just live by what you show us. In your name we ask it. Amen. So you may be seated.
Titus stuff. Just need to talk about one more thing. We are off to Japan really soon, like on Saturday, which is like really soon. I've talked the last couple of weeks about giving to Dennis. Well, today's your last chance to give. There's three ways to give to Dennis. Number one is, like I said, he needs money for an airfare to get back and visit his family. So that's one way. If you want to give to Dennis's airfare, mark it on the envelope and write airfare in big letters so we know to include it for that. The second is if you want to give monthly support to Dennis. So every month you give him some money to help him just with his living expenses. If you're going to do that, make sure to write monthly support in big letters. Okay? And the final thing is, if you just want to give money to Dennis and you just want us to take that money to him as a team and just bless him, again, just write it on there, but just write, you know, team money. So Japan team money. Okay? So it's really important how you designate on the envelope or else it's all going to get mixed up. Okay? So airfare, monthly support, or team money. And uh, if you want to give money to Dennis, we will bring it to him. Thanks. Okay. Um, just a couple announcements before we take the offering. Um, <clears throat> and I'd like to welcome any guests that are here with us today. If you are a guest, uh, you can fill out this Let's Communicate card. It's perforated. And um, you can fill it out and take it to the connection counter at the end of service, and we will give you a gift because we appreciate you coming. We wanted to express that. Um, <clears throat> all right, so uh, Graham did mention Stephanie's book is in, people. It's very good. I've been reading it. It's amazing. Um, so if you did order one, they are in the family room after service. You can purchase yours. And um, if you didn't order one, there are extras. So there's plenty here. So that is exciting. Amy has an update about the Jones' first meeting last weekend, which they were there. We had an amazing time last weekend. Um, it was amazing to see God's hand on everything. Um, connected with that weekend was a soaking school um, that was sponsored by a women's group there, and Catch the Fire came in and did that soaking school, and Dave did the soaking music for it. We did the worship, and um, Scott and Stephanie were a part of that too, and they were able to talk about their vision and their church. And... Um, a majority of the people that came to their first meeting were actually from the soaking school. A lot of people, you know, they're all in churches, but they came to support and are really excited about what is going on down there. And there's actually two families that have committed to help them on Sunday nights um, to come every month and do music or, you know, whatever they need just to help them with that. So that's really exciting. And um, after the first meeting, there were people coming up to them saying, so we have to wait another month? You know, can't, can't we do this every week? You know, I mean, people are excited and hungry. Um, we did prophetic ministry at the end, and we had a sign-up, and we only had 12 spots because we had to be out of the building we were in at a certain time, and we had to take all our equipment out. And um, this one lady came up to me, and she's like, I didn't get a chance to sign up. Is there any way I could still get prophetic? And I was like, well, we have to be out of the building, and la la. And she's like, well, if I, if I help bring out equipment, and I wait until you're all done, and, and there's time, maybe could I? And it's like, well, we'll see, okay? And, and she did end up getting prophetic. She was, you know, hauling equipment out with everybody. It was amazing. Um, another story that was cool is there was a custodian that was there. It was an elementary school that we were at, and the school custodian was there. 
And Stephanie invited her to come in if she wanted to. So she was in the back, and she was worshiping and um, entering in. And um, at the end, Stephanie had three words of knowledge for healing for people. And Stephanie said, I just feel like somebody has pain behind their eyes. And she jumped up. She's like, that's me. And she ran down to the front, and Stephanie prayed for her. And um, we found out that she had been in the hospital the day before because the pain was so bad. And um, she had a really bad sinus infection. And um, later she said that the pain was way, way down. It was a lot better. And I was thanking her for all she was doing. And she's like, oh, there's no place I'd rather be tonight. This was great. And she requested to the principal to be on if we're ever back there again. So it was great. It was an amazing experience. So that is uh, our church plant. Scott and Stephanie Jones's first meeting, and they're going to be having uh, a one meeting, which is going to be at the first of every month. So we can all be praying for them. Um, I don't have time to get to all the announcements today, um, but I do want to say that um, the books are in the back. And then also today is the last day for angel food orders for October. If you're interested in doing that, the Musels will be there taking orders. And then um, also there's going to be a fusion meeting uh, for the people who didn't get to the first training meeting. It's going to be next Sunday after church. It's going to include lunch. So for all the people in fusion that didn't get to go to that first one, it'll be then. And um, you can talk to Bill and Marilee Menzer for more details on that. All right, let's take the offering. All right, if you'll join with me in prayer as we bless it. Father, we just thank you so much for your love and your graciousness towards us, God, and your kindness. You are so kind. And uh, I just lift up this offering to you. I lift up the church and every member of this congregation, and I just pray a blessing over each one pray a blessing over the finances of each home and this church, and we pray a blessing over the week as well. In Jesus' name, we thank you so much. Amen. All right. The Japan team has, um, some members have uh, put together a video, um, and we're going to show that right now. So if it can begin. All right. All right. Due to time constraints and technical difficulties, we are not going to do the video actually right now. Um, but I would like to invite everybody that's on the Japan team to come on up to the front. Uh, we want to bless these guys. We want to pray for them. And we want to send them out as a church. We want to commission them on this trip. So if you are going to Japan and part of this Japan team, come on down. How many total people are on the team? Thirteen and a baby. Cool. All right. Um, So, yeah, if you guys would like to join with me as a church, we're going to pray for these guys. Um, Just real quick. For everybody that's on the prophetic team, um, we're just going to do something a little bit different today. We want to invite you um, to to come up to this area over here. We want to pray for the whole Japan team. So, Japan team. If you would like prophetic prayer, please meet over here after church. And if you're on the prophetic team, even if you're not scheduled this week, if you could help us out because we got a big team, that would be great. Does that sound good? Okay, cool. Well, we want to bless these guys. Um, so, um, Seth and Sarah, if you'd like to just come up here and join me in prayer. And if you would like to extend your hands and just agree with me, let's just bless this entire team. 
Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to go to Japan and to minister. And Lord, I pray that you would use this team, Lord. Father, I pray that your hand would be on them. God, that there would be a strategy when they get there. Father, I know that your heart is for the nation of Japan. God, I pray that you would impart that heart to each member of this team, Lord. That they would, they would know how you feel, God. That they would sense your heart for this nation, Father. And God, I pray for protection over them, Lord, spiritually and physically. God, I pray that they would get to Japan safely, Lord, uh, that all, all their flights would go smoothly and everything would work out well there. And Lord, I pray for spiritual protection too as they go into this place um, that can be spiritually oppressive. God, I pray for your protection over this team. God, I pray that you'd put on their hearts the prayers that are on your heart, Lord, to each and every one of them. God, I pray that you would impart a burden God, that they would they would share your burden that you have for the nation of Japan, for the people of Japan. God, I pray that they would go and they'd see lives changed. Lord, that they'd be able to bless our, our sister church there, God. They'd be able to bless Dennis and, and the whole congregation. Lord, that you would use them to make an impact. God, I pray that their lives would be changed as well, Lord, that your hand would be on every aspect of this trip, that lives would be changed, and that the, the nation of Japan would be changed as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Awesome. Okay, if I can invite the prayer team over here to minister and everybody that's available for prophetic over here, that would be awesome. All right, thank you guys for staying late with us today. God bless you. Have a good week.